0: Hello and welcome to Under the Skin. This week I speak to Tristan Harris. I think in all the time we've been doing this Luminary podcast, Tristan Harris might be one of the most exciting, most relevant, most lucid and important guests. If you saw the film The Social Dilemma, you'll know who he is. But what you might not know is how brilliant and uh, authentic and I would like to say articulate he is. He is the president and co-founder of the Centre for Humane Technology... The one thing he asked us is to promote his podcast... Your Undivided Attention. After you've listened to this, go and listen to Your Undivided Attention with Tristan Harris. Now, remember, if you want to ask me anything, you can ask me anything. It's a new podcast thing I'm doing where you interview me through your questions. Go to russellbrand.com forward slash askmeanything and record a voice message question where you can ask me anything. We've already done one episode. It's not been out yet, but it's really, really good. The quality of the questions is fantastic. Also, if you ain't signed up to russellbrand.com yet, do and you'll get invitations to my live online gigs and when it becomes possible real gigs and i send you like little videos and secret things as well check out my youtube channel for some really really funny stuff over the holiday season which i know you're gonna enjoy and follow me on all of the usual social media platforms but now let's get into tristan harris a person i think going to make a vital contribution to the changes the world needs right now
1: Trying to achieve
0: equality with the annihilation of category is not no, a successful route. Yes,
1: that's, that's, that's exactly right. We're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss. It doesn't look like an ideology.
0: What's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told. And welcome to Russell Brand. Under the skin. Hello, Tristan. It's so lovely to meet you. I've been watching a lot of your st- stuff, as everyone has.
1: Uh, likewise, I, I spent this morning looking at some of your videos. I think we share a lot of values. It's uh, good to hear you um, speaking about the, the very wide diversity of topics that relate to kind of what what is the human soul and what are the economic and social systems that um, respect some deeper aspects of what we're after here.
0: Thank you. How, how have you been? Where are you? What's going on?
1: Um, I am uh, at the moment in uh, back in California. Actually, my my home burned down in the Santa Rosa fires, so we lost sure everything that. that we had. Yeah, um, it's ha- it happened a couple months ago. But we, it's talk about a spiritual experience. Uh, we or at least a practice in impermanence, um, because everything that we had was just incinerated. Um, it was my mother's home, and we had every, you know everything that. I grew up with, and it was actually a tragic irony, the day that the house burned down was the day that the last moving truck had come that morning to deliver, um, all of my, to consolidate all of our things up there. So um, anyway, it's, uh, that's where I've been actually on the road the last couple of months, and uh, I'm now back in California for the first time in, in, um, in a couple months.
0: That what a sort of strange Old Testament-like experience. Thanks for coming on, Tristan. Of course, um, but like it sounds like you know you're a person that's on a quest. You've got a sense of mission and purpose. And while you're undertaking this sort of mission and purpose, you're having like garish, uh, garishly literal biblical events happening, like your childhood home burning down. I mean, how 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 are you feeling?
1: Uh, I'm doing all right. Yeah. I mean, our um, it was a very weird experience. Uh, two, two days, excuse me, two weeks after the Social Dilemma came out uh, and, uh, you know, which was three years in the making and became this kind of international moment where the whole world, it felt like the Internet was becoming self-aware of itself, essentially what was really happening. And there was just this surge of interest in media interviews. And then two weeks into that, um, these fires that have been in Northern California and getting worse every year because of climate change. Uh, came and unexpectedly took uh, my family's home. And so we lost everything that we had. Uh, we had less, literally like thir- 15 minutes notice. or thir- We got a notice at 8 p.m. And by 8.15 or 8.20, they said, actually, it's not a notice. It's in a mandatory order. And so we had 30 minutes to grab, you know, a quick set of things um, and, and leave. Uh, it. it yeah, we, we lost everything we had. But, you know, it's it's weird. It, it's like you said, it's biblical and it, there's a sort of immediate dissolution. It kind of uh, frees you. It's a practice in impermanence, really, of how do you relate to everything that you have and own and where does it sit? And now it's very clear that so much of these things sit in your mind. In, in tragic irony, that morning, that the, the evening that the house burned down, that morning, the moving truck had come and consolidated the last... Of all of my things uh, into one place. So it's, it's it's pretty just crazy to have all this happen at the same time. As we say yes. in the film, simultaneous utopia and dystopia, because the, the film has really woken up the world to something. And then there's, you know, so much dystopia happening around, uh, you know, that we're going through a period of transformation.
0: How did you feel during the time that sort of preceded your um, current mission when you were more embedded at Google as you know, a, a design ethicist is the term I, I, I understand, and that's what's written here. Um, but how, was that a, a period of sort of growing conflict for you?
1: Yeah. Well, so maybe it's helpful also to give your listeners a, just a sense of my background too, because I don't know um, how much they know. But I, I actually, you know, traditionally had done the Silicon Valley thing, where I went to Stanford University, I studied computer science. The co-founders of Instagram were my classmates. Um, I'm the same age as Mark Zuckerberg and many of the people who I think are now the, you know, running so much of this industry. Uh, I myself sort of, uh, I worked with the founder of uh, Wikipedia, Jimmy Wales, on his for-profit Wikia spin-off of Wikipedia. And I, you know, myself had started a, a t- technology company called Apture, uh, which Google acquired in a kind of a failed talent acquisition. And so i've seen both the inside of major technology companies and um, have a background with the culture of the kind of people who who build them and to your question about you know what was that like or was there a growing conflict um, when i was at google i worked with the gmail team and uh, i thought you know i was addicted to email myself and felt like the attention economy and this sort of race to kind of hijack our attention was so vivid in the way that people spend, you know, if you go to any internet cafe pre-COVID, you look at half the laptops open the cafe and they're all sitting in Gmail. People live in this kind of mental digital habitat. And I saw that, you know, it was an incredibly distracting environment, drip by drip emails, you, you know, switch tabs, then you see the little parenthesis icon go from, you know, two to 10 unread emails and people switch back to check which new email came in. And I thought if there was any room in which people would care about the well-being of people as they're using email, I was in the belly of the beast. I was working with the Gmail design team. And what I really cared about was, would we really try to make a dent in this digital habitat, being more humane and focused on people's well-being and um, helping people really manage their their attention better? And while those intentions were there, uh, I just found that the quality of the conversations that were being had, which is... You know the language and parlance of Silicon Valley is about engagement, usage, seven-day actives, meaning how many users in a seven-day period uh, are using it. That's how you measure success. And that language was really um, at conflict with what is really best for people. Like, how do we instead ask what's not what's good for technology or what's good for the product or what's good for success, but what's best for people? And um, as I struggled with it, I I went away on a weekend trip with with a friend of mine to the Santa Cruz Mountains and. um, came back, committed to make this presentation, which is in the film, The Social Dilemma, saying that we, had a we Google, had a moral responsibility in how we were holding the collective psyche of humanity by basically shaping and controlling global attention flows. And I don't mean Google. Like, Google, the nefariously mustache-twisting, was single-handedly responsible for this, but really, it was a message to the industry. But Google is one of the biggest companies in that industry. Through Android and through Chrome, is kind of like the... The federal reserve of the attention economy they're the kind of over overseer of where the flows of attention go are we focused on our email are we focused on news feeds are we focused on notifications are we focused on games do app stores privilege you know gaming and addiction at the top of their lists do they rank what what they show us by uh, what gets the most clicks or do they rank what they show us by what genuinely helps people the most Um, and it seemed like a really rich space to question and, and my thinking on this came later but what's really best for people and could we reorient the entire tech ecosystem to be about, you know, what's best for people, not what's best uh, for the bottom line. And of course, that message would eventually come into conflict. And I'm not naive to the business model and interest going against that. I tried for three years within Google to try to change that. Um, I wanted to very generously say, or rather, I want to say that Google was quite generous with, I think, allowing me to do that research um, and continuing to poke and prod. But ultimately, I couldn't get change to happen from within, Um, not because anyone explicitly said we're going to lose money if we do the things that you're saying. Um, It's really just that there's this kind of machine that keeps going and plowing forward, right? And you're only kind of tugging at the pant legs of people as they're busy doing their job inside of that machine. And it struck me that if we were going to change it, we would need to create some kind of external cultural force to, to... to top-down change the incentives of where all technology would go. And I didn't know how that would happen, but that's kind of what led me to leave Google and uh, now with the Center for Humane Technology, you know, our nonprofit that's focused on these issues with many other tech insiders and other advocates uh, working to change the industry.
0: Thank you for explaining that. It seems like um, it's it's curious because, in a way, it feels like your industry has something utopian about it and perhaps in the same way that Disney would have done a, ge- a generation earlier, just even from the outside, it looks bright. It talks about great and progressive values, but as you said, it's a, a, a behemoth, and in, in a sort of in a sort of a mythic sense, a behemoth is an appetite-driven creature. And as you've indicated in our conversation now, and Obviously, one of the central themes of the social dilemma is that it is stimulating addiction in people. And I wonder that now that you have made that transition from operating within uh, Google to setting up um, your organization and pursuing your mission, how... Has that made you feel more optimistic and what different challenges have you encountered since altering your role and having more autonomy?
1: Um, well, I just first want to say that I think that the social dilemma, um, you know, which launched two months before the election on, on Netflix um, on September 9th, has just had an, an unbelievable impact. On how people see these issues, um, it's been seen. We estimate it's been seen by closer to about a hundred million people. We know from Netflix um, in the first twenty-eight days it was seen by about thirty-eight million households, and many of those households were were families. And so, from the issues stretching from how this has affected children uh, and you know parents talking about these issues there to polarization in this country and in abroad, to you know all the countries abroad that have been swept by digital authoritarianism because of Facebook. I mean, we talked to Maria Ressa, who's the Philippines journalist, uh, who, you know, her country in the Philippines was the first Facebook nation with 100% penetration of Facebook. Every single citizen is on Facebook and the cost of that on on her society, sort of. uh. So I, I wanna say that I think, I feel more optimistic than ever that the seeds have been planted in everyone's mind, that the current model is unsustainable. And strangely, I think, and I try, we try really hard at this to communicate in a way that's not saying you, if you're, you know, running, if you're running something inside of Google, you are evil, or you, if you're working as a product manager at Snapchat, you are evil. We're saying, no, you are trapped like a hostage in a hostage video, um, which, you know, some of the things you say may not make sense until you see the person holding a gun to their head off stage, which is their business model, which forces them to keep doing some of the things that they're doing. But one of the things that we've seen is, you know, I get dozens of emails every day from people around the world, including many at tech companies, who are saying, I wish I could tell you some of the change that this is leading to inside of our company. You know, I heard from someone who runs a sort of Internet of Things company that does machine learning, and they were going to turn it into sort of a surveillance capitalism kind of classic the better we can predict about you, the more we can make money. And he said, We're going to pursue a different business model because of the social dilemma. I don't want to actually p- participate. In creating a surveillance capitalism state. Um, we, you know, we hear from people inside of Google who are saying we're showing it to you know our entire staff and our teams, you know teams inside of Apple, teams inside of Facebook, who are having those conversations now publicly. Facebook has rebutted the film. Um, there's kind of a funny uh, PDF that they posted trying to challenge the claims of the film, but anybody who looked at it, I think, doesn't take it any any very seriously. Uh, and I think just more broadly, the reason the film is resonating. And I'm not just with people in the tech industry, but for the first time, I think this, really, this, this issue really leapt to grandmothers and grandfathers and yoga teachers and doctors, and just people who every day have said, this is that thing I've been feeling. And it's confirming what everyone, I think, has already felt to be true. Just making it very clear, because it's told by the insiders who helped build it.
0: How much of it do you think is not actually problems that are unique to Facebook or, Facebook or the tech industry, rather? Um, but are the application of a capitalist paradigm in a uniquely rapacious and effective uh, system.
1: Yeah, I'm so glad you're bringing this up. I think the film is very clear um, at the end of the film when Justin Rosenstein, who's the inventor of the like button, says, this is the product of a runaway economic logic. And he says very clearly, so long as a whale is worth more dead than alive. And a tree is worth more as a bunch of two by fours than as a tree. Now we are the whale. We are the tree. Our mind is the very thing that's being strip mined for profit. In fact, if you want to extend the metaphor, uh, we started running out of attention to monetize. So we actually figured out how to double or triple the size of the attention economy by getting you to focus on two or three screens at once. Because then, now you're, atten- you're multitasking, and so we're selling thinner and thinner slices of attention. We're fracking for that attention. And it's that runaway extractive model that for the first time, as he says in the film, maybe this will be the thing that helps us wake up from the fact that this logic is unsustainable. Now, when you say that, it doesn't mean, hey, let's switch to socialism. It, it says, hey, there's a logic that if if we're the product, which is the whole point of the film, that when you're not the customer, but you're the product, when your mind is the very thing that is being um, strip-mined for, for, for extraction, for resourcing. We are worth more when our free will or consciousness is turned not into two-by-fours, but dead slabs of human behavior, predictable human behavior. Because the premise of surveillance capitalism is that the technology has to get better and better and better at predicting your next move. As Yuval Harari, uh, my friend, would say, uh, when technology knows our weaknesses better than we know ourselves. And if you view that as a trend line, technology is getting better and better and better at knowing your weaknesses, whether here's that thing that'll make you hate the other side more because it's, you know, you're on one side of the political aisle and we know exactly what kind of political red meat to throw in front of you. But now it's sort of AI generated political lab created red meat (laughs) because we can actually generate the kinds of things that will perfectly stimulate your amygdala. Or in the case of a teenager saying, hey, this is the kind of dosing schedule of social validation. That if we give you two likes now, but we hold some back and then we give you twenty likes later, uh, or TikTok competing with Instagram will essentially compete on how much social validation and approval, how much attention can we give you compared to Instagram? So literally, this is how TikTok stole users from Instagram. Is for a same video you'd post on Instagram, maybe on average on Instagram you get, you know, a thousand views, a hundred likes, and ten comments. If TikTok can say, well, if you post to one of these hashtags, you'll get a you know, hundred thousand views and a hundred comments. And, you know, many more likes. And so they're competing to hijack our nervous system, to hijack our deepest psychological needs. And as you said, it's not just, uh, hey, there's these evil design decisions. I don't think anyone intended for this to happen. It's a game theory of if I don't do it, the other guy will. So if YouTube starts auto-playing videos, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, and Netflix doesn't do that, and Facebook doesn't follow along and say, here's the up next, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, auto-countdown, here's the next thing. Everyone is competing in this race to the bottom of the brainstem, but it's a race to the back door to the human soul.
0: You're very good communicator, mate. Your um, analogies are spot on. Like uh, a lot of these metaphors, you can really chase down right to the. I didn't think you'd get as far as dead slabs of wood of human uh, attention with the whale or deforestation metaphor. That's an incredibly skillful use of language. Uh, just for a moment, uh, what I see, you know, obviously a really highly educated person. Where's that bit of it come from?
1: I'm actually really glad you're bringing this up. I think that these issues are really abstract. You know, um, when you think about climate change or, you know, our economic paradigm or deforestation or how technology is affecting society, each one of those are hyper objects, meaning uh, the philosopher Timothy Morton, the the complexity of those effects is far greater than sort of a simple mind can see. Like, where is climate Mm -hmm. change? Show me the atoms of climate change. Can I see them? Can I smell them? Can I touch them? No, I have to know about an abstract system unless I talk to the people studying coral reefs, uh, you know, in in Australia or talk to the people studying the glaciers in in Iceland or in Greenland or talk to the people studying species loss in the Amazon. So, um, but our analogy here is that this is like the climate change of culture, because just like there were, you know, if you didn't have the people who are studying species loss in the Amazon, loss of insects, you know, uh, half the insect mass going down. Uh, uh, the melt, the gl- melting glaciers, uh, coral reefs, uh, we have, a, those seem like different disconnected effects, unless you have a unified model of what climate change is, unless you have a language, oh, emissions cause this sort of set of cascading effects that are all dependent on each other. And similarly with technology, we have a climate change of culture. We have shortening of attention spans. We have a hyper focusing on the present instead of the future or the past of history. We have more isolation and addiction because business models that profit from keeping you scrolling by yourself are more profitable than business models that get you out with your friends in community or at church or out with, you know, sewing clubs or book clubs. We have more conspiracy thinking, more polarization, more extremism, uh, and a breakdown of truth. And those are not disconnected effects, shortening attention spans, polarization, teen mental health. Those are all part of a connected system that is that extractive logic that is causing all of them. So to answer your question about language, um, we focus a lot on language, because if you don't have clear things that everyone can understand, then we can't change the system. So we have to make it accessible for everyone. Uh, And I've studied things like neurolinguistic programming and Russell conjugation and been fascinated by the power of language over our minds. In fact, that's actually one of the things that got me into this was really seeing how, you know, if using the right language can actually help people see something that they can't see especially using kinetic language, saying things like the blast radius of an idea is more powerful than saying the impact of an idea. Um, and uh, anyway, we could get into all these topics. I don't know if you know the work of George Lakoff, um, who's a political linguist theory. Uh, he talks about the ways that metaphors are embedded in all of our language. One of my mm-hmm. favorite examples, no, um, one of my favorite examples is um, uh, the nation as a family. We don't send our sons and daughters to war. We don't want those missiles in our backyard and our founding fathers told us, right? So embedded within even the concept of a nation is the kind of construction of the nation as a family. Uh, and these are the invisible ways throughout all political language that, um, you know, we're affected. If you say to people, there's going to be uh, a lockdown, uh, suddenly you get half the country rebelling against that because, Hey, that's going to kill, um, you know, small business owners. But if you say let's do shelter in place, that's much more politically appetizable and people like Frank Luntz and George Lakoff and many others have focused on the power of language, um, you know, for a long time.
0: Thank you very much. The, um, in the example that you just gave, and I know this is not your, um, area of expertise, but just an area of study that you've uh, deployed within your area of expertise in the, um, that that's metaphor system of using familial language to mobilize a population. Um, it must be reliant on a kind of sort of universal psychic myth, as it were. There must be some kind of efficacy in that language that can reach beyond the myriad forms of diversification that you'd find in any population. And I, I wonder, it's sort of bearing in mind the, the 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 topic that we're emerging from, what you think or feel must be absent because one of the things I felt like a social dilemma which I, I, anyone would acknowledge and, and one more person praising it hardly makes any more a, a, any difference but I, I would say is of course it's a sort of a groundbreaking and brilliant piece of filmmaking and storytelling and a brilliant way of relaying data and a great showcasing of your work and the nature of the problem one thing I felt like I want to know more about and I, I, I'm just this is certainly not a criticism should because why should one film cover every possible facet of contemplation, is what do you feel is absent in us that means we are so susceptible to the evidently rather Machiavellian and brilliant techniques necessarily uh, employed by these tech companies? What are we missing? What do we want? Why is there this vacancy that is so uh, efficiently filled by these uh, facilities?
1: (sighs) This is actually interesting when you connect the conversation around language uh, that we were just having with this thing that you're pointing to, which is, I could easily say the answer to the question you just asked is connection. But notice how seemingly inadequate that feels at describing, you say, oh, there's a lack of connection. What what does that really mean? Lack of connection to what? You could say lack of connection to self, lack of connection to nature, lack of connection to a deep, fulfilling and lasting um, relationship to, to being in this world. But that lack is at the core of us um, as Buddhism and others uh, teach forever. And we're always trying to find something to fill it. I want to actually say something because I think that some people walk away from the film, The Social Dilemma, with the false impression that we're saying this is inevitable and we can't escape because our Paleolithic, you know, the line they use in the film is our Paleolithic emotions are baked in the Stone Age, right? And uh, they're not changing. You know, you're not going to change the fact that your mind is attracted to certain kind of social validation or approval or social reciprocity or um, you know novelty seeking variable rewards. Those are all things built into us, just like our minds and bodies are attracted to salt, sugar, and fat. The question is, what is the cultural software we're going to layer on top of that? I think some people watching the film, the social dilemma, when we talk about, oh, it's preying on our deepest weaknesses. They they assume that therefore we're you know we just have to surrender to this technology or there's no escaping it. The premise is not that it's that to understand how we get out of it we have to acknowledge the vulnerabilities that are being uh, influenced and manipulated so let's let's make it concrete for people um one of my favorite examples of this uh, because we all experience it if you're on social media if you post a photo or imagine you know your teenage daughter posts a photo um, and they get a hundred comments on that photo and 99 of those comments are positive just simple positive uh, comments but one of them is negative and nasty. If your mind was neutral, you would be absorbing a 99 to 1 ratio of positivity to negativity. But that's not how our mind works, is it, right? Where does your attention go if there's 99 positive comments and one negative? You go to the negative. And not just kids do that. We all do that. And then do you think if I turn off the phone, am I the only one? Do I, do I immediately leap to the next thing? Or does my attention loop back on the negative comments, right? And essentially, the... Our brain already has a negativity bias. If you actually, um, you know, uh, in studying kind of literature on mindfulness and things like this, you know, our mind will generally focus more on the negative than on the positive. But when you have a self-reinforcing system that shows us more of the negative because we click on it more and then there's a self-reinforcing cycle where we give people that more. I think at the core of the tech industry is in part a philosophical mistake. And the mistake is, I, I sometimes joke like, if we were to write a book about this, we might say, the head, the title would be "The Click," uh, and then the head subtitle would be "The mistake that turned the world upside down," because the idea that what we click is what we want, the phenomenology of like what would lead us to make that little click with our finger, just like what's actually inside of our nervous system that needs to get activated by a thresholding system to get that click to happen. Well, if it getting us at our click or our attention, according to that logic, when you drive down the you know the 101 or the five freeway in California. And everyone's attention is looking at the car crash, because when they drive by that area, everyone looks at the car crash. According to the logic of Facebook and Google, the world wants car crashes. That's what they deepest desire. They say they don't want it, but if you just look at their, you know, revealed preferences and their behavior, they want the car crashes. So they can and and this is the logic that has created these self-reinforcing degenerate loops of more polarization, more negativity. And uh, there's actually just a report out a week ago about the unique negativity of the US-based news media, which is even more negative than even abroad. Um, And I think, again, our news publishers, we we don't talk about this often, but our news publishers uh, and journalists have been caught in this loop, or even good faith journalists who want to do the right thing are playing in the same race to the bottom of the brainstem. And you've seen mainstream and, and really respected publications fall into this trap where they measure their journalists based on hey, were you in the top 10 most read stories? Did you get clicked on the most? How many shares did you get? And so social media, I think in a subtle way, has really terraformed not just our minds and our mental health and our connection to to, ourselves, but also terraformed the institutions and and the fundamental organs that make up a life support system for a society, including the fourth estate in journalism. And it's really critical we talk about that because when we say technology has been eroding democracy, we have to include the ways that it's been eroding the fourth estate.
0: Wow, that's really cool. Thank you. When you talk about want in there, Tristan, and and attraction, what we're attracted to, And you spoke briefly about the nature of connection and you sort of reeled off probably what the actual answers are, connection to self, connection to others, connection to nature. Those probably are the things that are sort of most lacking. I wonder, given the nature of the obstacles you faced in the two positions you've been in, one as an insider trying to alter from within and now as a sort of a um, a kind of somewhat benign, not necessarily adversarial, critic and uh, reformist of industry. How how do you imagine that something with such concentrated power, underwritten by an economic system that seems insurmountable, could ever be changed without some equally potent and, and likely concentrated form of oppositional power?
1: Well... I'm not naive to the fact that this is not just going to change with goodwill. Um, I will say most recently, um, the, you know, the actions by the Federal Trade Commission and the 48, I think, attorney generals that are filing as part of a massive antitrust case against Facebook that has emerged, I think, uh, just recently in the last week or two. um, That is a huge source of, you know, uh, progression on how do we actually make these systems work for the people and make sure we break up concentrated power so that uh you cannot have these sort of self-absorbing systems that just like the blob, every time you punch them, they just get bigger and stronger, right? And I feel like what people need to get about this is the amount of power that they have is self-reinforcing. Every time they succeed in sort of defeating your free will, right, and getting you to spend more time on these things, because you think, hey, I'm gonna flick my finger one more time, because I've already flicked, you know, for the last 10 minutes, but just one more time and flick one more time, then I'm out. And then you find yourself going in again, and it's like, hey, what happened there? Should I just have had more self-control? Or behind the slab of glass of of smartphone screen, there's a supercomputer pointed at my brain that has the avatar predictive model voodoo doll of me, and it literally is doing a trillion calculations of the perfect thing to show me. And every time it succeeds in playing chess against my mind and getting me to see the next thing, what happened? It didn't just get more of my time. It actually made more money. Right, so the whole supercomputer infrastructure that successfully won that chess game against my prefrontal cortex and against my free will sort of system, uh, if it exists, that money goes into Google or Facebook's coffers. That money gets reinvested into a bigger supercomputer that can see even more moves ahead on the chessboard. That can predict be- better and better each time how to out manipulate, how to outsmart us, etc. And and so I think we need to name. I think this is what you're getting at that this is a new species of concentrated power. as Shoshana Zuboff, the author of Surveillance Capitalism, says in the film, these are the richest and wealthiest corporations in human history. And we face ourselves in a bind. I don't want to be too depressing about this, because I know as we're walking through this, some people can feel really powerless. And I want to make sure we, you know, this is not easy, but I I want to make sure we are naming how difficult it is. If you took out the top five tech companies from the stock market, would you have the economic growth that we've seen uh, in the last you know, year to two years? A lot of the economic growth is coming from the top five tech companies. And if you took out surveillance capitalism, if you took out this business model and said, we cannot do it, it's very similar to taking out uh, oil from the economy, or in the 1800s, taking out slavery from essentially a free, creating a free source of labor for the entire economic system, uh, one of my favorite books is actually "Bury the Chains" by um, British author Adam Hochschild, who talks about the British abolition of slavery and how they had to let, the British Empire had to let go of two percent of their GDP every year for about sixty years to decouple their economy from slavery. Um, they could not do it with economic growth, and I think that's one of the core tensions: is is economic growth uh, in conflict with the changes that we do need to make?
0: It seems that it is, doesn't it? And that as the people that were reluctant to end slavery ultimately yielded. But I mean, the title of that book suggests that there's an awareness that slavery does exist in various um, less obvious, more covert forms. It's likely that without a kind of radicalism that, as is the case with environmental concern, and would perhaps be the case in the issue that we're discussing, that unless there is a kind of, I feel like a robust and radical approach with meaningful power behind it, what we will get is a, a kind of um, is uh, you know, like reform that is uh, I- I insufficient and gestural rather than meaningful. Well, because of that aspect of the film that talked about this sort of ongoing polarisation I f- couldn't help but feel, uh, bore the inflection of progressivism which Uh, broadly speaking my own political affiliations would lie with except for I feel like I have a a, a sort of a sympathy for the way that what could loosely be termed the right Trump voters, Brexit voters. I feel that something has happened the way that culture has altered in the last 30, 40 years, largely due to the migration of the uh, leftist politics towards the centre and its affiliation with identity politics over favour of sort of class politics and like meaningful economic change. I feel that like that is where the pa- like there's power there. There's power there that's being neglected, like that that, that. that perhaps, and I don't know how naive I'm being. You tell me. Like that, if this power was utilised, if people could see that, like whilst it, like you know, as dear Marianne Williamson said, that, ta- that Trump unleashed dark psychic forces. That, that these these forces are c- like r- real, and if they're not sort of met, understood, directed, heard, that they will you know that the, the pe- people that are able to give them uh, uh, appealing narratives will be more effective uh, I- I- in the absence of a- any other narrative you know now that sort of nationalism has become kind of tarnished you know and now that the 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 kind of jobs that that people from that those classes broadly speaking used to do are outsourced or automated you know like what it it feels like that the social changes required and it's something you referred to earlier are are so radical ie you know like l- l- the sort of profit incentive the even beyond socialism and i there are many values within socialism that i respect but the sort of the problem of centralization is one obviously that concerns me and the basic regard uh, for the earth and the earth's you uh resources and even the word resources suggest that they are there to be used as opposed to
1: like it's the language coming in exactly (laughs) yeah so i feel like um... language that deadens the sacredness of nature oh man that's treated as as something that that we yeah. need, but is 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 even by itself, just the use of the word resource, as you've just pointed, I think it's important to, s- to say that in the same way the nation as a family uh, attunes your perception of the nation in family terms, uh, the word resources attunes your relationship to nature as objects to be used, as opposed to things that also support the very nature of the economy working at all. We can have economies, but they have to sit on top of a working, uh, regenerative, self-regenerating you know, aspect of nature go on well
0: i feel like whether it's us as individuals or us as communities or the earth the earth's self we've it's become everything is regarded as utility that we're beyond capitalism in a car you know like capitalism is now sort of economically rootless not tethered to any kind of reserve and i i feel that it has become I feel that the really the kind of transformation that we are discussing is so fundamental uh, that it doesn't. I, I don't, by the way, feel hopeless. I sort of also feel like, oh my god, it's amazing that this documentary is on the TV, and it's amazing like the kind of the, what can be inferred from it. Um, but my sense is. My feeling, to cut on the table, is that the kind of what's required is a sort of spiritual revolution, a return to the sacred. Uh, like um, uh, I read a Gandhi quote the other day that we that we regard freedom as the kind of fulfillment of more and more wants. When freedom is the the, the releasing of wants, and if you look at the pivotal or fundamental essential role of wanting in the sort of dr- 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 in the topic we're discussing, people want this. Well, they don't want to click on that, but they are compelled to click on that. You know, unless people develop some systems. For for observing their own wanting detaching from their own wanting letting go of their own wanting letting go of not only capitalism but the materialism that upon which it depends then we are not in a position to free ourselves from this ongoing commodification unless we recollect because I mean, when you rather brilliantly talk about attention and consciousness as a, a commodity you know, the sacredness of consciousness the sacredness of awareness of being sentient creatures here on earth has been sort of denigrated and lost and I think we've extracted what is beautiful, like we've lost what is beautiful about religion, uh, particularly in its pre-monotheistic forms but also in its monotheistic forms in the race to some kind of secular hey guys, individualistic, egocentric utopia, which frankly hasn't been delivered and has brought us to the precipice of total destruction So what are we going to do Tristan? That's all my questions are. Tristan, what are we going to do? Tristan, what are we going to do? I know your house has burned down. What are we going to do? <laughs>
1: um well I first I I agree with you. I think that the film I you know, so just to be clear, you know, I'm the featured subject in the film, the filmmakers made their own creative decisions about how to tell that story. Um, I'm I'm really pleased that they I think included and made reference to the fact that this is a product of a core economic logic, because here's the thing, if I'm on the left or I'm on the right, if I'm on the right, let's say, of the political spectrum in the US, and I don't care about, say, climate change, you can say climate change, climate crisis, ecological catastrophe, all you want, and I just, I see it in conflict with economic growth, or I think I believe in a different uh, higher order of Christianity that says that climate change is not going to play out that way. So I don't necessarily agree with that kind of problem. Um, But if I am... Um, once this system of extraction or this economic logic, this this predatory economic logic that has run away, um, is pointed at me and my own children. If I can now, when I see my kids, you know, scrolling like this, I don't just see oh, like they're using it too much. I see oh, that's part of the dead slabs of human behavior that are getting piled up as into the you know coffers of large tech giants. That re relating, that re understanding of that, if perhaps there was a way to create a moment of awakening at a global scale, it would be by taking the thing that is in all of our pockets. This is used by every single person on earth increasingly, well, 3 billion people and increasingly more. And if this is kind of this this interesting um, choke point of common experience. We are all feeling something when we use these devices. And if that can be seen in terms of this economic logic, that all of us are now victim to. It doesn't matter which political side you were on. It doesn't matter what you believe. It doesn't matter which religion you subscribe to. Everyone is feeling the same thing. So there's this weird possibility that can emerge with people re-relating to my finger, scrolling in ways that I feel bad after too many hours of this thing, and seeing that as the product of, like you're saying, this kind of core, this core deep infrastructural, like we have to change the kind of the deepest aspects here. Um, I actually do think that what's required is a kind of cultural enlightenment, and you're bringing up the phrase spiritual enlightenment, because it has to also include what are the conditions for living in a world with this much technology. You know, we, we have this, um, we, we borrow kind of as part of our problem statement and, and mission statement, the, the framing of uh, sociobiologist E.O. Wilson, that he said the fundamental problem of humanity is we have paleolithic emotions, medieval institutions and accelerating godlike technology and you can't have the power of gods without the wisdom love and prudence of gods you can't have nuclear weapons and then democratize you get a nuclear weapon like oprah and you get a nuclear weapon and you get a nuclear weapon because you'd have to have each of us with the power to push that button have the consciousness matching the power that we have and in general that's what's been decoupled i mean you think take like um you know, even guns, right? Theoretically, if you're going to get a gun, you have to have a background check, some gun, some gun education, um, IDing system, making sure people are who they say they are, and a common understanding. So the the bigger the power you wield, the more licensing, education, consciousness you have to have. If I go buy a pair of knives, I don't have to, you know, at a kitchen store, I don't need to get a background check, get culturally educated. There's an assumption that people can kind of do that. But when you give everybody exponential communication tech, than sort of nuclear weapons of the global digital influence age, of a digital information warfare, where I can micro-target information to people and hyper-polarize them and send them down into the craziest far you know left or far right rabbit holes that I want to radicalize them. We've democratized the tools of global information warfare and global nuclear digital information mm-hmm. weapons. And we can't do that. So across every different domain, look at AI, look at what's coming with uh, biotechnologies, CRISPR gene drives, you cannot have the power of gods without the consciousness of gods. So whatever we're also going to create here as part of this transformation is a cultural and spiritual enlightenment that has us collectively have the society that has the cultural awareness and prudence to wield um, you know, the kind of uh, you know, power that we are now uh, sitting on. And we can't solve any of our problems without a higher level of coordination than what is uh, currently present. Um, you know, we, we, we have to uh, be able to agree with each other. And the thing that I think the social dilemma really nails as what I view as the central, uh, there's many harms that are enumerated in the film, but the real one is this sort of narrowing us, each of us into our own Truman show into our own micro reality that is incompatible with others because democracies depend on an ability to coordinate and communicate and collaborate with each other. So we can say, do I see that problem? Yes. Do you see that problem? Yes. There's, there's a pothole right there on the street. Yes. Got it. Did that kid fall over the pothole? Did that car get in a car crash there? Yes. Got it. Do we want to fix that pothole? Yes. Got it. Do we have someone who's going to come tomorrow and fix the pothole? Yes. Got it. Every time that we see a problem, we should be able to agree on it, talk about what would be reasonable and solve it. One of the interesting things you bring up religion, I think there's lots of things that are humane technology, including the babies we throw out the bathwater of religion. Take the serenity prayer. The notion that you know, God give me what is it? God give me the wisdom uh, to uh, distinguish between um, that which I can't well, change. Well, Tristan, and that and which I, I, can't.
0: I will handle this. This is the one part of the conversation that I think I can handle more deftly than you. I mean, even w- when you're sort of w- whopping out analogies left and right with incredible skill, which is normally a territory that I'd claim. You've owned the technological space. I'm not going near that. But the one thing as a recovering addict that I can...
1: are you looking it up Please. now? Are you using technology? <laughs> that's, um... I'm turning off my, my notifications <laughs> to stop disturbing me on my own.
0: It's um, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can and wisdom to know the difference.
1: Yeah. Beautiful. So on that front, um, here's how I reparse what that's about. Um, and I think if you go back to the evolutionary environment, our attention was coupled with our agency. Everything I could put my attention on a rock, a fish, uh, a tree, I have some agency over. I can put my hands on it. I can do something with it. So my attention is coupled with a sense of agency, something I can do, agency in a sense of ch- uh, capacity to change things, free will, et cetera. What's happened, and this has been a long process, obviously, is the decoupling of our attention from agency. So our attention is agency blind. It does not automatically natively run the code that selects for what we have agency on and what we don't. And our current technology environment is excellent. The attention economy is excellent at pointing our attention at the things that feel overwhelming and powerful and negative, which then leads to a, a collective learned helplessness Right? Even think about climate change, which I care deeply about. My news feeds, if you look at my social media feeds, I would see like, lots and lots of climate things because that's my personalized, self-reinforcing feed, and I don't use it much. But that's kind of my experience of social media. And even buried within that optimistic place that this is the thing we have to do, this is a big issue, is essentially two subconscious messages when you see any article as it's written inside of The Attention Economy about climate change. Essentially, it's it's worse than you thought. <laughs> And the second is there's nothing you can do. So even when we're giving you climate change in your news feeds and we're doing the thing where you're making people aware, we're making them aware in a low agency way, in the sense that there's nothing that we could do. We can't coordinate fast enough. Uh, you know, the temperatures in Australia are even worse than we thought. The water shortages in India, the drought is longer than we thought, right? It, so it's disempowering messages. And what I love about the serenity prayer is this notion that we actually need to load on cultural software that says... God give me the wisdom to actually select and have the courage to change the things I can, to ignore the things I can't, and to focus on the things that I, that, that, uh, that I can change. So you said it better. But imagine an attention economy built by technology companies that was actually all about high agency attention. That on a daily basis, I'm not saying that the answer to all the problems that we've enumerated is techno-utopian, here's a bunch of new social media that addicts people into scrolling like zombies, but now it's focusing their attention... Uh, on things that they can change. But just imagine in general, an attention economy where people are competing for ways that give us high agency ways to deal with the things in our lives, including Mm -hmm. our own, by the way. Right. And imagine that everyone was competing to provide a high agency change. Because one of the things I've I've actually personally, in my experience uh, during COVID, uh, that when you start saying, how am I going to make little improvements to my life day by day? And i don't mean just you know niceties but really generally like what's something i'm i'm committed to changing between today and tomorrow and as you continually make those changes uh you you start getting on this treadmill of feeling like real change is possible because you're feeling it you're seeing it you're watching how things are getting better every day and imagine that was the feedback loop the self-reinforcing feedback loop that we were not caught in but uh, enjoying because we democratically chose that that was the world of technology and culture that we want to live in. Oh man,
0: well done! You're inducing a very positive, hopefully shamanic type state in me at the moment. As it comes together briefly for this moment in my consciousness, Yuval Noah Harari, who you talked about earlier, who's been on this uh, podcast a couple of times, and I admire him very deeply. One of the areas where I challenged him when he he and I did an interview for one of his books uh, at a school in South London, I was sort of temporarily alarmed by Yuval's message, as it felt sort of quite uh, cynical. Where he said, like he sort of said, "You kids." Best learn. Code or something along those lines, and I said I'd rather give these kids the message that they better get ready to challenge authority and power, and be willing to do it, and not have their reality prescribed to them. Yuval, of course, has so much ex- a- expertise in anthropology and uh, uh, early forms, uh, earlier forms of civilization and human community, and I've long felt that what we need to do somehow is emulate these Paleolithic conditions in our advanced technological society. And your point there. About uh, attention and agency is a key way of doing that. Of course, no one wants sort of a a luddite lurch back to the past and you know smash the 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 you know the 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 technology. That's not what I'm proposing at all. But what I'm beginning to feel, Tristan, talking to you, is that because you know, like much of our culture, if not all of our culture, is based on our these sort of these primal drives that they, that everything is passing through the lens of greed or lust or selfishness. Our cultures are sort of uh, backed by the momentum of these unaddressed and unconscious forces. I think of like like a Trump, like a child's drawing of a president that we were primed to accept for decades before he appeared. With you know George W. Bush and the values of the '80s and the the uh, the uh, ongoing idea that we could solve our problems by consuming. And you as an individual and yes we can and like uh, the sort of the increasing sense of individualism being the answer to our problems that even the bifurcation of the church and uh, state sort of be, be, uh, heralding an onset of new materialism if you can't see it if you can't measure it it's not there a uh, guest has said before in this show from a sort of an astrophysical perspective and what I have gleaned from the emergence of global populism largely uh I would say, in forms that I'm um, politically opposed to, is that there does, as I heard Steve Bannon say in a lecture there he goes the future is populist all we're arguing about is whether it's right or left and my hope is that there could be the emergence of a new empowerment of people people that do feel left behind by progress that they could be told that you know that, that like you said we can't handle knowing what's going on simultaneously in Afghanistan and Stockholm and all right like you know that, that we should return to sort of low, like I'm thinking of like people like Satish Kumar and Helena Norberg Hodge sort of like beautiful enlightened awakened folk from a gender- or two ago that from their studies uh, have learned that what we need is to where possible within our communities be responsible for our means and where necessary be broadly globally connected. I'm not talking about a kind of atomization or isolationism. I'm talking about a kind of new confederacy that we could all resign from the, the family of the nation. Like what is being American or English or whatever it is if it's not taking care of you. If more and more it's privatizing where there's profit and, and neglecting welfare where, wherever possible a kind of what I sort of feel is that like that we have to look at what we are evolved for and where possible create conditions that, um, that are uh, uh, um, amenable to that and that is going to involve f- attacking centralised power, debilitating centralised power whether it's state or corporate and the only way you can do that is through sort of political means, I know I've said a lot there
1: Yeah, there's there's a lot there. Um, One of the things that you're mentioning is, uh, and I think I heard you mention it in another one of your interviews, but we need to kind of emulate the conditions of our evolutionary environment to replicate what was wise about those instincts. So in an environment where salt, sugar and fat are quite rare, uh, you know, your extra attraction to those makes sense because we need them. um, And we they're special, but in an environment where that's those are abundant. Is an environment where that's counterproductive and sort of, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, not, not helpful. Um, and I think part of this is kind of an understanding of how do we really work and pointing this this our own intelligence back at ourselves to understand ourselves, which I think is what all the wisdom traditions are about. The, it's because you know whoever helped come up with or wrote the Seren- Serenity Prayer, knowing these factors about ourselves. It's through the wisdom of having that insight about our our attention being agency-blind that we need to load that on as as extra sort of software. Um, And so in general, I think I see the project of humane technology or the humane reforms that we're talking about coming with a deeper and deeper capacity to understand ourselves and our own weaknesses, again, not in the sense that they drive us, they're part of sort of the flesh part of us, then there's sort of the higher part of us, if you want to use that metaphor. I was talking to the musician Pharrell and he talked about it that way, the sort of the robot is the flesh. And then if there is something special and we don't have to uh, conjure it with with, uh, you know, something magic, but the, the felt sense, the subjective sense that there's something higher than that. Um, it doesn't just because our, our minds respond to social validation and approval doesn't mean uh, that I have to focus on that. Once I understand that and I can make object of it, I can start to release myself from that drive. Not everyone is so concerned with um, how, appeared, uh, how they appear before others. Teenagers. Uh, are especially sensitive to those things, and young developing children are especially reactant to uh, sugar, which is why they were preyed upon for for so long. So we, so one of the things I want to bring into what you're saying, uh, Russell, is um, a developmental perspective. I don't. Do you know the work of Robert Keegan or kind of adult develop adult ego development? No. Because one of the one of the things that um, Jonathan Haidt talks about this as well. And he says, you know, if you take the John Lennon view of the world, uh, you're talking about ending nations and erasing boundaries, and we are all one and um, he, he says that, that the reason that won't work is that we do. There's a, there's a deeper part of us that needs tribe, that needs um, uh, you know that kind of group identity. And if you see it as a developmental stage, right? Some people, after having certain experiences or awakenings or whatever in their life, I think decrease at some point in their lives their need to feel identified with a really big tribe or a nation but there's an important developmental stage where we do need to feel that. And if you skip over that stage, it turns into uh, repression, regression, like we will, you can't skip over these important developmental stages. Um, As children, we have to go through the stage of experimenting with our identities. We have to go through the stage of seeing why our social validation is important. But there's a difference between environments that prey upon uh, those needs and social validation, because right now children are just in a psychological war zone of constant uh uh surveillance judgment from others uh uh social validation dose to them on you know completely unnatural schedules uh 24 yeah. 7 2 in the morning 3 in the morning it's it's just unbelievable what we're subjecting uh, kids to you mean to say something
0: i'm agreeing with you
1: yeah uh and, and i so i just i think what we have to do is have a developmental view Of the human and have a society that is focused on lifelong human development. There is a healthy stage for tribalism. There's one, there's a reason why I would see sports as a humane technology to reroute our warlike and and sort of violent instincts for tribalism into maybe more healthy win-lose games that are less violent. Sports is a nice rerouting of some of that tribal um you know need to be part of something bigger and to root for something. Um but we have to ask: what are those humane technologies that reroute? the negative and more difficult parts of those instincts uh, into something healthier. And i just say one more thing. Um, there's a concept from um, Europe. There's a book, what is it called? Um, the Nordic Secret, I think it's called. Uh, and it talks about um, Bildung, which is the concept of lifelong human development and societies that are oriented around deepening our spiritual development, our moral development, our relational development, because I think that's the right North Star. If we jump straight to there's no boundaries, there's no nations... Yeah. We still have a world with nuclear weapons and command and control systems and geopolitical interests and various ideologies. And China is still trying to create Belt and Road. And we, we still have to ask, how do we live in a stable environment? Because so far as I even though I'd love to sort of awaken the world, you know, all at the same time, <laughs> uh, we are still operating in a. In a game-theoretic environment with different interests and ideologies.
0: Genius that John Lennon is. We cannot use his songs as a system of global government just yet. But like um, I would say that when you were talking about um, much of this conversation has been the way that uh, tech companies are able to harness our Paleolithic or I- inherent I- instincts and impulses for their gain. And when you were talking there about tribalism and nation, that, that the affiliation we feel with nation is obviously our repurposed tribal instinct and it makes me think about the nature of sovereignty whether that's I- I individual or, or, or national. The, the, the fundamental relationship between the governed and the governing is we will protect you from violence and you give us some of our money. The reason I feel that the word anarchy has become synonymous with chaos as opposed to synonymous with what it actually means, no government, is because there is a sort of a, a linguistic and ideological temptation to conflate anarchy and chaos because of the implication that human beings ought have their own sovereignty, their own agency, voluntary democratic communities where everybody's voice is heard and it is in it is understood and discussed and culturally explicit that some groups live differently have different values and as long as those values don't impede on other groups they should be free to pursue them i feel that when we sort of fall into that trap of saying well if not capitalism you know, it's socialism. I, 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 I feel that we are foregoing the possibility of a solution that is distinct and reliant, once again, more on our, uh, our anthropological origins. And this is, in a sense, what I'm interested in discussing. And I obviously obviously don't know how to sort of begin this process except that i've sensed that there could be along the lines of the movement that you've already been, it begun in terms of spreading uh, like, con- conveying information about the sort of the reality of the tech industry making suggestions about how it could be altered. this could work on a sort of a social political level that regardless of where you are in the world whatever nationality you may be whatever religion or culture etc that you could choose to remain enshrined uh, within the conditions and constitution of the you know nation that you're born into or you could opt out you could we could create different communities that run in alignment not in alignment but parallel to the our existing capitalist extremist ideology and um, there's a brilliant author god rest his soul though he's a communist so he wouldn't care for that mark fisher uh, who um said that, you know, that in his book, like capitalism says that capitalist realism is that our inability to envisage a reality beyond capitalism, he says it's more, it is easier to envisage the end of the world than the end of capitalism. We can't. I've heard that. Yeah, yeah. that's
1: wonderful. Yeah. It, it's,
0: and I suppose this is what perhaps what, um, you know, I suppose while you're doing the wonderful work that you are doing, I, I suppose what it makes me consider is what are the sort of spiritual accompaniments and social political accompaniments of the kind of state that you are advocating is that a question about uh, what, what are the... Actually, the intention behind it wasn't interrogative. It was a sort of verbal equivalent of you're doing really great. Well done and thank you. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, we're, we're all in this together. I think one of... The, so it's interesting. You talk about Yuval Harari, who I'm, I'm happy to call a, a dear friend. He, one of the things he talked about in one of his early talks from five or six years ago was the concept of techno-religions. Um, what it came from was the notion that as technology creates brand new issues in society, um, the, you know, the mullahs and the rabbis and the priests and, and won't have things to say, uh, necessarily, or no, be the experts on what do we do about CRISPR gene drives? What do we do about micro targeted, uh, manipulated advertising? These are not thick questions that the ancient religious institutions were ready to, um, to give us answers by we can be informed by some of the principles underneath things like whether it's serenity prayer or other things like that. we can we can harness and make sure we rec- I sometimes think of this as a mass recovery mission for all the babies we threw out with the bathwater. So let's go out and recover all the babies. But then let's also realize that there's brand new issues that we're facing. There's new complexities. How does you know, AI autonomous weapons intersect with bio warfare intersect with uh, Gpt three, the ability to simulate text uh, or simulate, Uh, reality deep faking things like that Mm. one of the trends um russell is that in general we're virtualizing more and more of these human instincts if you take you know we have virtual social validation instead of real validation if you talk to a friend and they just tell you you know russell something i appreciate about you is the the following right that's that's a kind of an authentic that's the nicest
0: thing anyone's ever said to me
1: (laughs) (laughs) well that's it's it's the kind that we're seeking right there's those 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 privileged moments A real presence in someone you can tell is really just saying the thing that's true for them. And they're saying, you know, this is something I appreciate about you. That's real social validation, Um, not the kind of virtual you got 20 likes on this photo, but this comment didn't do so well. That's not real social validation. Um, We need to make social validation real again. We have dollars as a virtual form of value. Uh, we, we value things based just in the currency of dollars. What you measure is what matters. And we've confused the easiness of measurement in one metric system, in the dollar system, uh, with the actual depth of value. You know, who are people that are doing deeply undervalued work, whether it's meditation teachers or yoga teachers or people we gain deep insight from, who maybe don't have as easy a ways to monetize that. But if you actually ask people in a retrospective way, who or what have made the pot biggest differences in your life? And on a retrospective, like who would you even put money down to recommend to other people? That's how much I believe. I have skin in the game. I'm I'm putting my own reputation, my money down to saying these are the things and people that I would most recommend help me at this stage of my life. Imagine dollars flew in that direction. So we have a new economic logic based on retrospective deathbed values of here's the things <laughs> that actually were most valuable. And suddenly all these flows of money are, are moving in a different direction. We have virtual connection and romance. Um, one of the trend lines that we've mapped in the social dilemma and in our work is that technology is going to get better and better at undermining and hacking and virtualizing these human weaknesses. So take our desire for romance and intimacy. There's a new company called Virtual Mate, which literally, and this is just an extension of virtual chatbots and things like that. If you don't know about this, uh, there's a virtual chatbot called Zhao Ice in, in China um, that um, was written by Microsoft. And I think something like after nine weeks, people say they prefer... Uh, many people say they prefer the bot to their uh, the real friend. Um, I think some per- large percentage of users have said "I love you" to these chat bots. <laughs> and as these things, this is true in Japan and things like this. In general, as the virtual starts out competing the physical, as the virtual form of connection, the virtual friend, the virtual mate, because it's more personalized. Uh, your virtual mate will do all the things you wished your real partner would do. They're always there for you. Uh, as I always say, you know the, why this is so seductive is that this puts a new choice on life's menu that is always going to taste sweeter than the reality of being with yourself not that it's better i'm not saying it's better but it will always taste sweeter than the immediate being with ourselves i we brought Thich not han uh, to google uh the famous uh, zen and uh, not zen but mindfulness sort of so many things his background is is illustrative he was nominated by uh martin luther king for the nobel peace prize in i think the late 60s but he um you know is this monk who we brought to google and have a conversation with the google designers and what he said that stuck out to me the most is that the thing about smartphones is it's never been easier to run away from yourself and i think that that um the seduction of what will always be sweeter about these virtual forms of validation reciprocity approval we need a back to the land movement for the human soul to understand how do we make reality more real again from this virtual reality, this simulation, the Baudrillard sort of level five you know, virtualization of our disconnection to all the things that actually matter. And that's going to not be as economically profitable as being authentically, rather being in authentically, con- authentic connection with the vir- with the real is not going to be as profitable with living in an increasingly virtual reality. Whether it's games, virtual mates, virtual text, virtual value, uh, et cetera. You're saintly. You have Saint energy.
0: I would like to stay in touch with you if that's a possibility. Um, I have to end this um, conversation now, and I want to tell you so that I get your approval what it is I'm doing, but I'm I'm too disciplined, Tristan. I'm too disciplined to outsource my well-being to a face, albeit a beautiful one, on a screen. Mate, you're a very, very lucid, beautiful communicator, well-intelligent, uh, like uh, well-intentioned, beautiful, beautiful person. It's such a joy to spend uh, uh, an hour in your company. Thank you for your work as subject of social dilemma. Thank you for the brilliant work you're doing through your foundation. I do pro- like, a, by the way, just so you know, I'll do a proper in- uh, I- um, intro and outro that. Exp- contextualizes you cor- as correctly as i am able to do with mere language and uh i'm th- i'm very grateful to you can i give you my email if i do give you my email do you use a phone or do you are you do you object to them would love it
1: thank you no i would would, lo- would love that yeah it'd be great. yeah let me know how if Gosh. i can help you in any sort of way would love that thank you for spending the time i didn't know if we i didn't realize we'd gone over so oh no no well uh, you were too fascinating to curtail thank you so much mate let's actually talk again sometime because i, I think this i'm really into right now we do need literally a mass cultural uh, moment awakening enlightenment and it's happening across all the levels and i actually would love to talk to you about that i know we both share a common friend um although i'm forgetting his name for some reason um uh ayahuasca guy in new york why am i forgetting his name daniel Pinchbeck. um pitchback of course yes i i also so, um
0: i also Tristan, I like as soon as I, I watched social dilemma and i like off the back of it i called a publisher and said i'm gonna write a book now about like addiction and recovery specifically from tech addiction so i'm obviously gonna have to turn to you for that but like and that's what interests me when i, I was just hearing about the sort of the Mobilization of sort of a adi- hello there, addiction and the ideas around uh, addiction. I was thinking, well, then the re- see, in the, the um, you know, Serenity Prayer is a 12 step thing that from Alcoholics Anonymous, and they sort of in their, their really folky, hokey, lovely 1930s Americana white Protestant patriarchal language, they say some sort of mad stuff like, uh, We know that there's something in this, there's some, this is the great, more is going to be revealed, which is obviously sort of pretty typical of any sort of religious uh, discourse. But what I've come To believe is that the the what is sacred about the twelve steps is it is a sort of a relative it's a modern uh, tool for overcoming the ego. You overcome alcoholism not by you know the abstinence is the beginning, but by overcoming the idea that the ego is what you are in the service of. You surrender. That's right. You surrender and like what I feel like is well this we must regard this object in the same way it's a chemical compound on some level whether it's internal or external and and uh yeah we have to the same solution will work surrender faith connection service annihilate not annihilation of the self but sort of a becoming the witness of the self It's in a sense the 12 steps is just a replication of first century christianity and some sort of jungian ideas and buddhist ideas anyway so but that's what i think is the sort of like inadvertent or accidental or divine genius of that program and, I, and I'm very interested in its application in a, a variety of ways.
1: Totally, totally. Well, let's—I know you have to run, but let's let's absolutely talk about it some more sometime. I would I would really uh, cherish a conversation. Thank you so much. I really appreciate yeah. it, Russell for putting attention on this topic and um, everything else that you're doing. Thank I you. got a chance to watch many of your videos this morning, and it was uh, it was fun that you're banging the drum that you're you're banging. So
0: thank you very much. I feel the same way about you, and I'm very grateful to you. Thanks, man. I'll be in touch. My cat just it okay. through this connection. While this was happening, so you sort of suddenly went quiet. Oh, no. What do we make of that metaphor? <laughs> we're going to find something that that burning house must mean some sort of rebirth for you. And this, well, this is the problem of becoming too spiritual—is you do go a bit mental. Everything's a sign. It's a sign. Indeed. Thank you for listening to Under the Skin with Tristan Harris. Let me know what you thought of it on Instagram. Tag me at Russell Brand or tweet me at Rusty Rockets with the hashtag Under the Skin. Sign up to my mailing list at russellbrand.com. If you like this. Listen to Brittany Kaiser, Adam Alter, Seth Abramson, all experts in and around the subjects that we were discussing today. And remember, to keep checking out my YouTube channel for new videos. Thank you for listening to Under the Skin from Luminary.